Hello everyone, I'm Nate Truex and you're listening to the Crockcast Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host Nate, and today I'm joined by Roy Blodgett of Wellspring Herbs. Roy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the invite. Round two. Yeah, let's see if the audio file holds together this time. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> So, uh, Roy, want to tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, how you first got to Herps and kind of your career path with them leading up to this point? Sure, yeah. So, um, yeah, I grew up in a household with some reptiles um, right from the start. My dad um, had a pretty diverse collection of herps and also some invertebrates, arachnids, stuff like that. And... Um, so it was just kind of always there in the background and i was definitely one of those kids that was just pretty much obsessed with all forms of wildlife from an early age you know and, and also dinosaurs and um but i had a special attraction to uh, herpetofauna and snakes and lizards in particular and um you know i had my first pet snake when i was like three years old my dad bought me a pet california king snake um and you know i had a handful of other herbs through my childhood and um getting into my teenage years i started to get into it a little bit more seriously and had a special focus on neotropical colubrid snakes so i had uh, dry marcon and spilotes and phrynonax um at least that's what they call them now back then they had a lot of those taxa had different names than they do now and um yeah when i was about uh i guess i was 17 um i actually took a break from herpetoculture um i was in kind of a rough home environment had to had to just get out on my own and um, i couldn't really do that with a room full of reptiles so i i kind of quietly dismantled my collection and sent off all my herbs and spent the following decade kind of more focused on um, kind of naturalist training and skill um, skill building. So I did some wildlife tracking and just kind of um, generally building a repertoire of um, you know qualifications as a as a naturalist in this part of California. And um, then in 2018, I started thinking about keeping reptiles again. I was in kind of a different stage in my life, a little bit more stability, and um, the species that I really wanted to start working with again was uh, Spilotes sulfurius, which is uh, the Amazon puffing snake, which is a species I had kept and um, had the good fortune of hatching a clutch from as a teenager. Um, the clutch that came in from a, a gravid wild-caught female. And um, so I did a little bit of research and found somebody breeding those. And ultimately, kind of long story short, I ended up getting reconnected with somebody I knew back when I was a teenager who had ended up with one of the, the Spilotes I had hatched. And um, he ended up sending that snake back to me. And that kind of restarted my... Um, my engagement with herpetoculture, you know, after being totally absent from it for over a decade. And since then, my um, 
my focus has kind of grown beyond just Spilotes. I do have a group of those that I'm working with, but I also keep a few other um, snake species and lizards and have kind of a strong draw toward uh, neotropical herpetofauna um, and also kind of Mexico, southwestern herpetofauna as well. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the highly condensed answer to that question. So what all do you have in your collection? Um, so right now I have um, the Amazon puffing snakes, of course, the Spilotes, and then I also have a pair of uh, Phrynonax polylepis, which is a, a smaller species in that kind of same family of like the puffing snakes. Um, and then I have uh, Polychris marmoratus, which are the common monkey lizards. Sometimes they get called monkey anoles. Um, and I have some Suriname leaf litter toads, which is a kind of new thing for me. I haven't had amphibians for a very long time. Um, and then on the other kind of my other room, I keep a lot of temperate uh, region species. And so I have tricolor hognose snakes. I have a South American hognose, which is a Xenodon dorbignii. I have Texas alligator lizards, Newman's knob scaled lizards, um, a pair of Yucatan spiny tailed iguanas, and then a pair of Polychris uh, peruvianus, the Peruvian bushinole. Um, so I have a kind of a, an eclectic collection, you know, both lizards and snakes. And then, as I said, more recently, these toads arrived. Um, and I like it that way. I like to work with species from different um, ecological niches, like as a as a naturalist and as a natural history geek. I get a lot of enjoyment out of um, seeing how these species, you know, occupy their habitats and and ecological niches. And so, um, diversity is important to me in a collection, even even as I I see the benefits of specialization. I tend to be more drawn to having kind of a a wider array. Okay. Uh, mentioned, uh, you know, diversity in collection as well as uh, specialization. One thing I noticed with your specialization is a lot of stuff from uh, Northern South America, especially. Yeah. Uh, you want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that all kind of came from, you know, starting with those Velodes, um I, the, being those were the first things I started keeping again when I got back into herpetoculture. Um, at some point, you know, I wanted to start working with some other things. I wanted to work with some lizards um, just for interest and enjoyment. And I was thinking, you know, it'd be nice if I could find species that work well within the same general parameters of um, like temperature and climate control and all that stuff as the Spilotes. And so I started looking at species from that same region and um, that's kind of one of the general focal points in my collection is is this region of the Guyana Shield, which is, yeah, as you said, Northern South America, um, you know, present day French Guiana, uh, Suriname, Guyana, and parts of Venezuela. That's kind of largely what represents the Guyana Shield. And one of the interesting things about that area is that 
um, Guyana and Suriname are both um, are, are basically the last two countries in South America that still have um, some export quotas for um, herpetofauna. And so there's, you know, the animals still coming in, um, new bloodlines to work with. And a lot of the species that are coming in still are, are species that personally, I think are really interesting and have just never been established. Um, you know, like the the monkey lizards are a really good example of that. Um, the Spilotes, you know, also are a species that, um, you know, they've, there are a few a handful of people breeding now, but they're definitely not like broadly established within herpetoculture. And so, you know, as, as someone who's participating in the practice, the broader community of herpetoculture, I want to be doing so in a way that's kind of contributing and, um, one of the ways I, I feel like I can kind of help to fit in is um, helping to helping to figure out what these kind of more sensitive, unusual species might need to thrive, and um, you know try to get the get them to have a little bit more hype, a little bit more shine, because I think that a lot of species like that just you know they get overlooked and um, underappreciated, and um, yeah, I like to be kind of a champion for for species like that in, in the trade. Yeah. So is there any particular reason, uh, reason why you're drawn to that region? I think, yeah, I think that part of it for me is like, again, as like a nature geek, you know, as a, as somebody who's really interested in that, um, there's something about the Amazon region that almost feels like it has like a mystical quality to me. You know, it's like, it's like this um, dark and mysterious and enigmatic region, you know, where there's just profound biodiversity and there's still, there's still so much within that region that hasn't been described or even, um, you know, discovered, you know, by modern science up to this point. And um, yeah, and I also, you know, I tend to like, just like on like a kind of superficial level, I, I tend to be like drawn by the appearance of, herbs from that area, you know, there's so much diversity in how they uh, inform, you know, and some species are colorful and beautiful and others are more like cryptic. And um, I just, I just think that's so cool to have so much diversity within one region. Um, it's, it's kind of mind blowing to me and um, inspiring and kind of fills me with this like kind of childlike wonder that, um, has a lot to do with why I'm drawn to herpetoculture. It just makes me feel like lit up and excited and curious about the world in ways that um, I think are really uh, useful and gratifying. Yeah, but speaking of colorful and cryptic, uh, you want to talk about the sulfurous, the puffing snakes? Yeah, of course. Yeah, they're the they're a good example of that you know they they kind of can occupy both of that both of those. Um, because uh, they're they're neat snakes. They're so they're the largest, um, probably the longest colubrid species in the New World, and um, among the heaviest. There's a, there are a few species that might get heavier, um, you know, in the Drymarchon or maybe Hydronastes genre. But um, in terms of length, you know, they're they're con a lot of confirmed reports of them regularly exceeding 10 feet and there are some of you know isolated accounts of them 
up to uh, 14 feet, which I think that's probably maybe a little bit exaggerated, but I definitely think 12 feet is within range for that species. Um, and they're, you know, for all their size and impressiveness, they're not very well studied. Um, and the, there's probably even a few different species maybe that that um, actually represent what we currently think of as Bolodi sulfurius, just because they occupy such a huge range. And there's some definite like geographic isolation at play that produces different color types and locality forms. Um, but another thing I really think is interesting about them is that they're highly polymorphic. And so, um, you know, when they're born, when they hatch from their eggs, they're almost all patterned in black and gray or kind of shades of brown. And um, as they grow, they assume a gradual ontogenetic color change. And um, as adults, they can be almost any color out there. You can see them that are, you know, a lot of them have uh, bright yellow. That's where it's sulfurous, you know, the specific names come, come comes from. Um, but there's oranges and reds and gray browns and black and um, all kinds of shades of green. There are even some that have been kind of a blue color. Um, so that is such an interesting aspect of them. I think um, you, do, you can hatch a clutch and um, you can not, you, you don't know what the adults are going to look like really. And um, you have the, the, of course, the, parents will give you some idea of what's possible but um as an example you know i just i just hatched a clutch this past november and um, the babies are slowly starting to change color now and um a lot of them are showing colors that neither of the parents had um, which is kind of surprising to me and at a little bit out of left field but um like the male the sire of the clutch is a big uh, jet black and like bright highlighter yellow snake and the female is um, kind of like olive uh, olive green brown with lots of yellow and uh, a lot of the babies are showing like bright orange and like bright red stripes um, and I'm like okay like where did these come from you know I, and I don't know what guess the, they look but uh, pretty cool I guess they're Guess I take more after the mailman. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, the UPS was... guy might have showed up. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what's the what's like uh, the care requirements in your experience with these things? Yeah, so there's definitely. Um, I mean, there are a lot of different ways that people have successfully kept them. Um, um, like like Jason Hood, for example. Um, he's, he's like probably the most successful guy with Amazon popping snakes up to this point, bar none. And, um, he's kept them in a wide variety of setups, uh, like vision style cages and neodeshas and, um, you know, standard PVC, you know, four by two by two to six by two by two style enclosures. Um, I really like to part of again my interest in herpetoculture is, is the natural ecology and so i really like to go all out and provide the most like absurdly naturalistic displays i can and um i don't necessarily expect or anticipate that anyone else should have to do that but it's for me that's like so much of the enjoyment 
And so I actually keep mine um, communally in a very large vivarium. They're in a they're in an eight foot by three foot by six foot vivarium right now. Um, and it's it's like fully decked out with a rock background and a ton of uh, live plants and branches that can access every little inch of it. Um, and all the live plants that are in there are from Suriname and, and Guyana. So there's, you know, same plants they would encounter in the wild in some places. Um, and, you know, I keep them with overhead heat and light. So they've got halogen heat and um, both a mix of LED and uh, T5 UVB lighting. Um, and they, and they're, it's awesome to observe them in a setup like that because they're basically always out, um, out basking and cruising around in the branches and, you know, looking around for food. Um, and for me, that's just like, so it's just so much more fun than keeping them in something simpler. Cause I get to observe a lot more, a lot more kind of interesting behavior and, um, yeah, so that's kind of how I keep them. You know, all the babies I have set up pretty similarly, but obviously just a much smaller scale. They're not like a huge eight foot thing, but um, but they do have the same, you know, provisions in terms of like heat and light. And they're still in little setups with live plants and stuff. And um, in terms of diet, they, they specialize, it seems to me, they specialize in rodents and birds. Um, I think that... And nature, they're probably um, like a nest raiding species primarily because um, they <laughs> they're rear fanged. Um, so there's that, and they actually have a, a dual compound toxin. So they have what's called a sulmatoxin, which is fatal to small mammals um, and like rodents. And you know, I imagine they eat like little arboreal opossums and stuff like that where they are, because there's a lot of that down there in South America. Um, but then they have another toxin called soldatoxin, which is uh, fatal to uh, birds and, and lizards. Um, and I think that they eat a lot of little nestling birds. They eat eggs really readily. Um, I feed mine a mix of things. I like to give them as much diversity as I can. So I give them you know, rats, mice, um, quail, chicks, eggs of all kinds of different birds. Um, and they've seemed to be thriving on that diet. And they're pretty impressive. It's funny though, cause like feeding them live, like they, they're not very good at actually like killing prey, <laughs> I, which I think again, lends itself to that nest rating specialty because like, if you think about it, um you know if they're nest raiding they're 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 consuming small defenseless prey pretty much in quantity um and the advantage like the imperative when you're doing that is to eat the things as fast as possible because mama bird is going to show up any minute and try and peck your eyes out <laughs> And so yeah. one th that's one thing that people always notice with spolotes when they're feeding them is like how fast they eat. Um, and I think that that, again, is just an adaptation because they're they're trying to eat all those baby birds or all those baby whatevers before mom comes around. That's my guess, at least. Yeah. yeah. They adapted to get big, not to hunt bigger prey, but more of smaller prey. Yeah, it's kind of funny, but... You know, and they can, I mean, like my adults will eat, 
large rats and stuff like that, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to feed them live rats because they would just, I'm sure they would get chewed up by them. So yeah. thankfully they all accept frozen thawed, but um, it's funny. Yeah. So uh, I'm guessing like uh, the other Spilotes that I've worked with, which is uh, Spilotes, Spilotes, the tiger rats, uh, yeah. they also have a, I guess they also have a, I don't know if foul is the best way to describe it, but <laughs> uh, standoffish temperament. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they can. Um, you know, it's funny. In my So I, I noticed a really big difference between the, the captive bred and the wild caught between them. Um, in the case of the captive bred and born, you know, my big my big male that I had when I was a teenager, he's a puppy dog, He's which is nice because he's huge and I would really, I would not want to be bitten by him. Um, and then I have a younger male, a juvenile male, who also is super mellow. Um, you know, he doesn't try to bite at all. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't handle them a, t- a whole lot. I don't like try to take them out because they, they typically resist that. But what I like to do is like just open the vivarium and sometimes they'll actually just come over because they're curious and it seems or, you know, they want to smell me and want to see what I'm doing. And sometimes they'll actually climb out onto me, um, especially the younger male will do that. Hey guys, so uh, we're back because apparently technology hates us. Uh, <laughs> we had disconnections and people getting kicked out of video calls automatically and stuff like that. So we're back one day later trying to finish this off. So, uh, <laughs> call. yeah. So, I recall correctly, where we left off was uh, you're talking about uh, puffing snakes' uh, personalities. So, I recall. Oh, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So, the temperament uh, on the Spilotes. Um, in my experience, the um, capture bred and born are pretty amenable. Um, you know, like as babies, they're pretty feisty, but that makes sense. Just, you know, baby snakes, they're, you know, eaten by everything. So, it pays to be, be a little feisty. But um, as they grow, they get a little bit more confident and, you know, both of my captive bred males um, are really mild mannered and handleable and, and even kind of curious. They'll, they'll come over and when I open the door and one of them will even come out and climb on me a little bit and stuff. But um, it's a different story with the wild caught females that I have who um, they don't like me, you know, and I try to, I try to just give them respect and space um, and every once in a while though like actually it happened quite recently i was just in the vivarium doing some basic maintenance you know like cleaning and and um kind of pruning plants and stuff like that and one of the females was she was puffing up a little bit and she was you know she was letting me know that she was a little bit annoyed that i was in there but that's kind of par for the course and i was kind of ignoring it and then um at one point she kind of went behind this big cork round where i was also kind of working and i couldn't really see where her head was going and then all of a sudden i just see this flash of yellow and she just nails my hand (laughs) and um and so i pull back my hand and i go oh my god okay all right fine i'll leave you alone today and so you know she was just kind of gave me a quick nip a little warning bite but um you know they are they are rear fanged um snakes and given their size you know it makes sense to treat them with some respect um and so um you know typically i'll just give them space if they're in a bad mood (laughs) 
Yeah, same reason you want to mess around with a pissed off uh, false water cobra. Yeah, exactly. It's just just not worth it. Let's just go back another day. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, in your experience, what is it like uh, breeding those things in captivity? Are they kind of difficult, or is it just mm -hmm. not people not, enough people have tried it? You know, I it's hard for me to even say because um, so I've only I've only bred them successfully once now. And, um, but I had, you know, I've been, I've been attempting to, to get them to breed for the last three years. Um, and so I had a few years of, you know, failure at that. And then this last season, um, was kind of expecting for more of the same. And then I got surprised with a, with a good clutch that, you know, all the babies hatched, which was great. Um, but you know there are some people that are really successful and consistent with them jason hood is the is the one who stands out here in the us at least um and it seems like you know um the the biggest factor is getting healthy adults um you know the wild caught that come in are often just in rough shape and it takes it can take a while to just get them on track um you know with my two with my two females that i mentioned were wild caught it took a couple of years really to get them where they were dialed in and feeding consistently and, um, and putting on weight and just, just more or less, you know, acclimated to life in captivity. And so, um, that seems to be the biggest hurdle I think. And then beyond that, what I've done to, um, cycle them is, um, I simulate kind of wet and dry seasons in the vivarium. So, you know, because where they come from is right on the equator, pretty much. There's no real change in daylight hours. There's no like photo period change, but um, there's really significant precipitation changes throughout the year. And so, you know, I'll go for a couple months without really misting very heavily. And then I'll just start misting really, really heavily for a couple months. And um, that will usually s stimulate some behavioral changes. Um, and then the other thing I do on top of that is, um, is I adjust their food intake. So in the, the dry season period of the year, I feed them less frequently, um, but usually with larger meals. So maybe every three weeks I'll give them, you know, one medium rat or something like that. Um, and then when the wet season cranks around, I feed them weekly, um, but with smaller meals. So I'll give them like, you know, three chicks once a week or something like that. And, um, you know, because like, I think that that's something that they would experience to some degree, you know, in their native range and in the wet season, there's just greater abundance in every way. There's more prey availability. And that tends to be when a lot of, um, a lot of birds and stuff like that are having their babies. So it seems to work. Yeah. Gotcha. So in review of this species, what type of keeper would you recommend this for? I'm guessing more more advanced, more yeah. well able to provide like bigger space and stuff like that. Yeah. I think that they're, you know, they're definitely not a beginner species, although, you know, I mean, in some ways I was a, I was a beginner again, you know, when I got back into them and, and started working with them again. Um, and so I think it's, you know, it just takes, depends on the type of person you are, you know, if you're a younger person doesn't have any experience with reptiles then it's probably not the best beginner species. Um, but there are some people out there who are just really, you know, um, 
meticulous that could be fine with them as their first snake or something. You know, they're in the they're in the minority though. I would definitely say on average they're kind of an more an intermediate to advanced level species. Um, particularly the wild caught. I would say the wild caught are definitely an advanced level species for most folks. Um, um, capture bred and born are a lot easier, um, but yeah, the other thing is, like you said, the space requirements are significant. You know, I think that just given their size, they they kind of need at minimum a six foot um, vivarium, you know, setup. But ideally, even larger than that is better. Um, I'm hoping to eventually. I'm going to be pretty soon here, actually, building out an even larger setup for for my adults, um, and it's going to be almost twelve feet long um it's gonna be like a big built-in thing in my herp room but um yeah that is like probably the biggest factor honestly to to limiting their um their growth in the hobby and herpeticulture is just their size they're they're um <laughs> demanding snakes in that regard yeah well i mean the upside of them being kind of niche is that no one it's not a huge demand for it so yeah totally you know it's it's always going to be one of those things that i think is kind of niche and i hope that they stick around i also think that actually you know they're a great species for like public displays like zoos and aquariums and stuff like that because because they're so big and they're so impressive and they're also diurnal and really really visible when they're kept in large spaces like that like typically you know any any time i go into my herp room they're most or all of them are just out basking in the branches and that's so so nice to see you know with the species it's one of the reasons why i like them it can be a bit less fun when you when you have something that hides all the time yeah shout out to all boiga keepers yes exactly and i love boiga but but um that is one of the downsides you know is they like to they like to hide being a nocturnal species or a nocturnal tax i should say yeah so you keep, like I said, we talked about earlier yesterday, you keep a lot of other Guyana shield species, including, uh, said monkey and is one of them when, do you want to get yeah. to them? But, but I did notice one glaring missing species, uh -huh. Paleosuchus. Oh, so. uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, there we go. <laughs> Someday, I wish. I think that that might be a struggle here in California for me to get my hands on those guys. But maybe if I get like a, public display someday going and then i can they can yeah. get a good excuse for that that would be fun i was just actually looking at um somebody who had i think they were in they were in ecuador they had just they had just posted a picture of one they were like on a night hike and it was just in this really shallow creek you know just right there it's so cool to see see a small crocodilian like that they would inhabit these small streams even i always think of crocodilians you know being in big water but yeah very cool yeah if i recall correctly uh one of the defining differences between uh trigonos the schneiders and palbrosis the cuviers is their habitat preference is that mm. trigs prefer uh like you said these really small shallow bodies of water and, like deep forests and stuff like that yeah. whereas the cuviers prefer a much larger rivers and lakes and tend to be more open habitat like savannas or more open gallery forests. that's awesome that makes a lot of sense i think that trig the trigonotus is what i was seeing pictures of so that totally lines up 
Very cool. So was did it look dragon or dinosaur like or puppy like? It's best way to describe <laughs> difference between the two. Yeah, it's true. Although they're both they've both got a little bit of puppy dog sensibility being so small for for ants, but not the attitude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh you one of the species you also mentioned was um uh monkey anoles. Uh you want to talk yeah. about those? Yeah, totally. So those guys are I'm really into those. I think that they're a species that has just been hugely overlooked in herpetoculture for a really long time. And um you know, for whatever reason, I think that there have been a few people over like the last few decades that have kept them and even bred them, but um, they just have never really stuck around for some reason. And so um, those are the first lizards I started keeping again after, you know, like I said, this long hiatus away. And I was immediately just like, wow, these are, these have so much going for them. They're super personable or at least they can be, you know, if you kind of hand feed them and build build trust with them. Um, they're beautiful. They are a good size. Um, and they're also uh, pretty, they're pretty like slow moving and have like kind of a slow metabolism. So they don't take a ton of food and stuff like that, like a, like a monitor, for example, might. So um, yeah, I've been, I've been keeping those for, I guess, three years now and um have successfully bred them three times now um and and hatched all the babies and the babies it's it's great because the babies um are just totally bulletproof you know the the adults have a terrible reputation in captivity and you know every year they still get imported in large numbers and sadly pretty much everyone i know who has tried to take them on in the last few years with they brought in you know big groups and so like that hasn't been successful in getting them to acclimate which is which is a shame because we could really use more people working with them um but i found that the captive bred babies are super um sturdy which was kind of a concern you know when i first was breeding them i was like all right like let's see if these are viable you know if they if the if the babies are as much of a struggle as the wild caught adults, then it's probably not a species that has a future in herpetoculture. But um, I've been really happy to learn that the babies are super durable. Haven't lost a single one yet, and um, I'm slowly kind of trying to get those into capable hands. You know, sending them out to a handful of other folks who are are good with uh, neotropical lizards and who have a good chance of reproducing them and. I think that this either later this year or probably next year, um, we should have some F2 um, babies born from from the first year of hatchlings that I produced, which would be amazing. Cause I don't think, I'm not entirely positive, but I don't think that that has happened yet with that species in the US. Um, I think that a lot of people have hatched F1 offspring, but um i don't know of any f2 yet and um yeah so they are in a lot of ways i i think of them like the new world version of a chameleon you know they're they're very similar in terms of like their ecological niche they they call them um canopy walkers so they you know live high up in in tree canopies and shrub canopy um, and they move really slowly and tend to pick off um 
large invertebrates as prey. They really like to eat things like uh, katydids and mantids and phasmids or stick insects. Um, and they'll also consume uh, fruit and berries and stuff like that. Um, and in my experience keeping them, they do really well in like big planted vivariums, but they can also be housed individually in like a two by two by three style setup pretty well. Um, again, because they have a kind of slower metabolism and they're not super fast moving, they don't necessarily need a ton of space, um, which is great. And, um, yeah, they're just they're just really unique. They have again some similar adaptations to chameleons in that they also have this like, rapid color change ability, and um, they have independently moving eyes like a chameleon does. You know, they got the whole little thing where they can be looking yeah. at you and looking at somebody else at the same time, <laughs> which is pretty neat. And um, the cool thing about them, though, unlike most chameleon species, is that I found that if you if you hand raise the babies and you like, you know, hand feed them little bugs and stuff like that, they'll, they'll very quickly catch on that you're the food monkey and, um, and that they like you. And, um, I've had several at this point that just become super tame, you know, and I'll walk in the room and they'll run up to the front of the glass or want to jump out and I'll open the door. They'll jump out on my shoulder and I can just feed them, you know, some mealworms or some sliced banana or something like that. And that's, that's just really rewarding, you know, as a keeper to have something that like looks forward to interaction with you on some level, even if it is because you're a food dispenser, it still feels good. So um, what are they like size-wise? Oh yeah, so size-wise they're, I would say, um, I mean, they're mostly tail, so it's kind of hard to say, but the females are much bigger than the males um, um, and they can get to maybe like, I would say 45 to 75 grams in weight. Um, so that's usually like probably five and a half to six inches snout to vent length, but then they'll have like another 18 inches of tail, <laughs> literally like really long tails. Um, and their tails are semi prehensile, which is why they call them monkey lizards. I think is because they will use, let, use the tails for balance. I've even seen them hanging from their tails a couple of times. Um, the males are a lot smaller though. Like the, an adult male marmoratus, Plecris marmoratus, will be like 25 or 30 grams. So he could be like a third the size of an adult female in terms of weight. Um, and they're usually top out around maybe five inches, not to bend. Um, so pretty good size lizards in terms of like not too big, not too small. Um, and I like that as well. I think it's like pretty ideal in some ways. So I'm really, again, I'm really hoping that we can get them, get them established because I think that more people should be should be giving those lizards a try. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, you recently got back into uh, amphibians as well. Yeah, yeah. So this is um, that's a totally new, a new thing for me. I really, I haven't kept amphibians at all since I was a teenager, and back when I did, I mostly kept uh, caudates. You know, I had some some tiger salamanders and fire salamanders, stuff like that. Um, but I recently acquired um, just a, a trio of um, Suriname leaf litter toads in the genus Ranella. Um, and they're just a pretty innocuous little cryptic species of toad. They look like, you know, dead leaves pretty much. Um, but I think they're really cool. 
and um, so far they're doing really well. But um, part of the reason why I actually got into those is because um, I recently had an opportunity to acquire what for me is basically is kind of a dream species of snake, um, and that's uh, Xenodon werneri, which is a uh, sometimes called the Guyanan green snake or um, the false palm viper. They look a lot like a Bothrops bilineatus. Um, so they've got like a beautiful teal green dorsal surface and a yellow stomach. And right now there are only two of those in, in all of herpetoculture that I know of. And um, those in their native range are primarily frog and toad eaters. That's what they, that's what they like to eat. And so um, part of the reason why I got these toads was to help with scenting prey items and stuff like that to place these uh these warner to hopefully eat uh reptilinks or something like that um it's not a species that i think would do well on like a rodent diet but i think if i could get them to eat reptilinks or quail or something like that that'll probably be a better approximation of what they um are used to eating so um right now that that snake is with a friend and some really capable hands but um she's going to be sending it to me soon and I'm excited to see if I can, yeah, figure, help to figure out what that's, that species needs. Cause it's something that up to this point has just never really done well in herpetoculture. And, you know, it's very possible that I won't be able to figure it out either, but I want to give it a try. Cause it's, it's just one of those enigmatic, you know, species that I've always admired. So. Yeah. And it looks like a palm viper anyways, so double cool. Exactly. I mean, what's cooler than that? <laughs> the really cool thing too about those snakes is that um it's potential there's potential that they're that they're dimorphic, sexually dimorphic. And um, but but we don't actually know. Like there's 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 some kind of anecdotal accounts of seeing them, but we do know that they typically occur in two color forms and one is the 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 bilineatus mimic but then the other one um has much more cryptic coloration it almost looks like like mangshan viper colors like like lichen and there's some speculation that those are the females and that they are actually mimicking another species of bothrops so i can't think of any other that has thing going on where they're sexually dimorphic and then the two different sexes are mimicking different species of pit viper that's really cool so we'll have to see if that's actually true i don't actually know but pretty neat yeah uh let's see what goes or or some of the other stuff you keep uh besides those well we yeah yeah, so we also have also that's kind of mostly my tropical room stuff, you know, the guy on a shield room. And then on the temperate side, I've got um the tricolor hognose snakes and um Texas alligator lizards, some Mexican knob scaled lizards, um, and then uh Yucatan spiny tailed iguanas and Peruvian bushinals. Those are the kind of other room. And um those are all species, you know, that kind of they, though they come from different areas uh, in general, kind of broad strokes, 
um, they're compatible being kept under similar conditions. Um, so they all do well in the same room for me, which is good. Um, the Texas alligator lizards are a really cool species of lizard. They're, they're one of the larger North American lizard species, um, the largest in that family, you know, the alligator lizard family. And um, I just hatched my first clutch of those, uh, which was really exciting. I, I got my original pair as, as little babies and raised them up. And um, it was great to, to bring it full circle and hatch some, some babies of, of them as well. And those are really cool lizards. I think that, again, another species that has a lot of potential just because they're easy to care for. Um, they're really, they're, they're pretty amenable to handling and interaction, um, which I really like. And um, really, they produce a lot of eggs, which is amazing. This female um, laid a clutch of 28 eggs, which kind of blew me away. Um, and that's not even really atypical. It's pretty common eggs. Um, and then, you know, the knob-scaled lizards are interesting to me because um, they're actually ovoviviparous. So they, they, um, they're live-bearing, so they don't lay eggs. They give birth to live young. And um, I don't keep anything else that's like that. I've never had that before. So... Um, Mine are still pretty young. I'm still raising them to maturity, but I think that probably either this year or next they'll be mature. And I'm hoping that I'll be able to produce those and just kind of witness that process. Yeah, because I've never I've never had anything like that before. And um again, as someone who's just like a, a behavior and ecology geek, um seeing how different species, you know, achieve success in reproduction and stuff like that is really interesting to me. So um those lizards are unlike the alligator lizards and the pleakers they're not very friendly or very handleable um when i have to do health checks on them sometimes i um i i, I go noodling for them that's what i call it i i'll stick my fingers in the crevices where they are and just wait for them to bite me so i can pull them out <laughs> um but uh it really is like they, noodling it really is like they <laughs> they latch on and they bite pretty hard but um they're 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 really interesting lizards i think that like it's it seems like a really strange cross but for me they they remind me of like if you crossed like a night lizard with a a heel monster like a beaded lizard and like because they've got these really kind of um beaded scale texture like a gila or a beaded lizard would but they're these crevice dwelling, um, you know, dorsally flattened lizards, like much like night lizards are. So um, really weird, oddball creatures, but I like them. So switching to something else you do, uh, you also do uh, have this business of uh, rattlesnake relations. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I'm actually wearing my, my rattlesnake relations shirt right now. Um, yeah, so rattlesnake relations um, kind of emerged for me as in a pretty organic way. You know, it's like, like I'm sure you can relate. Um, being the the reptile guy growing up, you kind of develop a reputation for that in your you know local community and all that. And so, um, you know, into my teenage years and young adulthood, I kind of 
became known as a snake guy. And so sometimes I would get phone calls from neighbors or, you know, people who kind of gave my number out through word of mouth. And um, it'd be, you know, like, hey, I've got a rattlesnake in my garage or in my backyard or, hey, I have a rattlesnake problem here. Can you help me? And um, after a while, I was like, oh, yeah, I think I, I think I want to turn this into something of more like a formal offering of services. And so, um, so I started Rattlesnake Relations. And essentially what I do is um, I offer a range of services to help kind of um, offer like basically mitigation around rattlesnake related issues in uh, this part of California, Northern California, where I live. Um, and um, a lot of the time it's like, you know, translocation removal calls and stuff like that, which isn't honestly my favorite thing because I don't think it's actually the best thing for the snakes. Um, and I also don't think it's um, the most effective thing in terms of like actually mitigating the conflict and so um what i prioritize is actually more education services and consultations so i like to go out and offer um like property consultation services where i can come out somebody's you know house or land and offer an inspection figure out um why they might be having rattlesnake issues because almost invariably um it's because they the the homeowner is unknowingly creating a really strong incentive for the snakes to come in closer than they otherwise would um and you know where i live it's a mediterranean climate it's very dry most of the year and so you know if somebody has a leaky hose you know um that's the only water around for for miles potentially that's like a reliable water source it's going to attract all kinds of wildlife including snakes um one example i had that was really uh kind of classic was uh i got called out to a place where these people had they were literally considering moving from this this amazing like you know multi-million dollar property that they had up on overlooking um this whole valley where i grew up and uh, because they had so many rattlesnake issues and when i got there i kind of did a quick inspection within that inspection of like 20 minutes walking around inside their perimeter fence i i located three rattlesnakes that i caught and you know moved outside of their fence but um the reason why they had such a major issue was because they had um they really loved birds and they had peacocks and they had chickens but they also really loved wild birds so they had wild bird feeders everywhere like probably a dozen of them within this this is within this yard and um all this bird seed that was being dropped on the ground had created a rodent problem and so they had a lot of rodents and the rattlesnakes had fully caught wind of that and were like this is the place to be life is easy here this is paradise and so um I, you know, kind of talked to them about that. I offered a bunch of different mitigation strategies that they could employ and um, they've since done that. And since then they've had a huge reduction in the um, number of rattlesnake encounters that they're getting on an annual basis, which is great. It's better for the snakes because they're not getting into a place where they're gonna, you know, end up on the wrong end of a shovel. And, um, you know, it's better for the people because they they don't have to move. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah but um it's also kind of a uh, it can be a kind of a hairy job at times i um i 
I have one kind of fun story that I can share from it where I um, I received a call from somebody who um, sent me a picture um, of a rattlesnake basking in like um, an, a ventilation vent underneath their house in their, their crawl space. And the snake was under the house on, the, on that side of the vent, right? But it was basking in the sunlight coming through. And they said, Hey, we keep, you know, we keep seeing this rattlesnake basking here under our house. And, um, can you help us with it? And I was like, Oh yeah, I can help. And so I ended up coming out. I spent like an hour with this homeowner doing this, you know, walk around his whole property talking about what he could do. And, um, and while we we're doing that, um, we came around to this vent and there's the rattlesnake sitting there basking like, like usual. And so we finished, we wrap up this, this whole call and then, um, he goes, all right, so what are we going to do about that rattlesnake? And I said, well, yeah, I guess I can, I guess I can move it for you. Do you have a crawl space access? And he's like, oh yeah. So he goes over and he opens up this crawl space, a- crawl space access in his house. And I climbed down there and right away I climbed down and there's a big, there's a glue trap because they had hired a pest control service. Um, and on the glue trap is a baby rattlesnake that was still alive. And so I'm like, oh, great. So now there's two rattlesnakes at least down here, and I don't know how many more are down here. So I hand up this glue trap, the baby rattlesnake stuck to it, and I'm like, I'll take care of this. But after, you know, I, I find this other snake, and I start getting down into this crawl space and starting to move around, and it's very narrow crawl space. It's so narrow that I can't I can't actually fit my um, my five-gallon bucket in the crawl space, even side sideways, it wouldn't. There just wasn't enough room to roll it. And so um, I'm kind of going, okay, I've got to crawl over to like the other side of this house where the snake is and catch it, put it in some sort of receptacle and get it back and hopefully don't get bit in the process. And um, I end up talking to Homer and I'm like, do you have any, do you have a Tupperware or some sort of locking bin I could put it in? And he goes and finds something in his garage and I'm like, okay, that'll work. So I'm, I'm army crawling, <laughs> you know, literally army crawling, like, you know, less than, less than 12 inches of space in some areas for me to squeeze through. I'm like squeezing through underneath the floor joists and um, all the while, like, you know, with my flashlight and my headlamp and my snake tongs looking to, to make sure I'm not going to go slide into any, any more snakes. And Eventually I make my way over after like 20 minutes of army crawling to where the snake is and the snake's still sitting there. I can see it. Um, and I'm like, okay, I've got, I've got pretty much one chance to get this right because I've got to get the snake with the tongs, get it into this thing, get the lid on all very swiftly because if I lose control of the snake, um, it has nowhere to go. <laughs> Cause it's cornered in the back corner underneath this crawl space. And I, I don't have anywhere to go because <laughs> I can't move very quickly down here at all, especially moving backwards. And so I kind of took a couple deep breaths and just like as fast as I could just go bam, bam and just get the lid on. And thankfully it worked, got the snake into this container and got it out. But that was one of those situations where after, after I left, you know, I was driving away, I was kind of sitting there thinking to myself, like, I should probably have a hazard rate for doing this kind of work. Because <laughs> that, like, there's, there's, like, there are certain things that fall into my normal job description, and then there are certain things that fall just a little bit outside of that where um, it's just not worth it. 
it's not worth the, the, the hospital bills that it would take if I actually, you know, got bitten. And thankfully I've never been bitten up to this point, but. Yeah. Um, yeah like $75 per foot of crawl space. Get crawl. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah that, sounds, that sounds good. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, this, sometimes, you know, the places where I'm going, they could definitely afford that kind of rate, but um, I try to be, I try to be fair. <laughs> yeah. Well, to be fair, crow fat is expensive. So, yeah, it is not cheap, you know. And I try to talk to talk to people about that too, you know, that because a lot of times, you know, when people get bitten, it's because they're trying to kill it. Um, you know, the, my experience with rattlesnakes around here is that they they just want to get away from you, and you know, they're not they're never going to go out of their way to bite you. But um, you're going after them with a shovel or you know otherwise cornering them then they absolutely will so i try to tell people you know it's better it's better to not not get them into that because in that state because if you do get bit it's really expensive and um sometimes people are willing to hear that and other times you know you get the only good snake is a dead snake kind of attitude but what can you do yeah well same type of people that my experience, same type of people to say the only good thing is death take are all the same type of people say the only good girlfriend is your cousin that has a girlfriend. So <laughs> no comment. <laughs> yeah. So um, what sort of species uh, do you have around where you are at? Um, we've got pretty good diversity here. So I'm about, um, I'm about specifically, uh, the, uh, specifically the rattlesnakes. rattlesnakes? Oh yeah, yeah. So, so we actually only have one rattlesnake here. Um, we have the Northern Pacific Crotalus oregonus, um, and or Crotalus viridis oregonus. If you're if you want to prefer the old taxonomy, um, and they're um, they're a really interesting species because they have a huge range. They have one of the largest ranges of any rattlesnake species. So they're they're kind of found from Central California all the way up into British Columbia. So all through Oregon, Washington. And so they can tolerate really cold temperatures too, as you'd expect from something in that range. Um, and they're really abundant where I am. They're one of the more common species of snake, um, really successful. And, um, you know, like a lot of rattlesnakes, they, they overwinter in communal hibernacula and stuff like that, which is cool to see. Um, I've seen several hibernacula while I've been out working and, and also just even before I was doing rattlesnake relations, I, I, I found a few in some local like parks and open spaces and stuff like that. And we go and check out the snakes and watch them. And um, I think that they're amazing. You know, they're, they're also pretty variable in terms of color. Um, sometimes you'll get them where they're really dark and almost black. Um, other times they can be like this really nice, like olive green color on the sides. Um, and uh, in, everything in between, I see some that have like more kind of golden tones, more browns, and um, got all, they all have that classic, you know, black and white banded tail. And um, they, they're kind of a medium-sized rattlesnake. You know, they're not going to get as big as your Atrox or your Adamantius or Horridus, but they're, um, you know, they're much bigger than the Montanes. I think the biggest one I found was. Um, was right around four feet but at that at that length it was about the thickness of a of a soda can so that was a pretty pretty serious rattlesnake not something you'd want to get tagged by 
uh, so before I cut you off about rattlesnakes, you were mentioning other other herb diversity you have around where. Oh, you're yeah. At. Yeah. So there's some pretty good diversity here. I live about um, about two hours north of San Francisco, and um, so this part of California, we get you know a few different species of garter snake. We've got California king snakes, um, California mountain king snakes are kind of the holy grail species around here. They're really, really hard to find in this part of California. Um, we've also got rubber boas. We've got um, ringneck snakes, sharp-tailed snakes, um, a couple different species of uh, racer and whip snake. Um, so pretty, pretty decent snake diversity. And we only have a few lizards. I think we have four lizard species here. Um, but, or actually we have five where I am, which is kind of nice. Cause, um, I just moved actually one County to the East and there's one more lizard here that doesn't occur where I grew up, which is kind of cool. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, there's also, you know, when you get closer to the coast, um, like Sonoma, Marin County, and, uh, Mendocino County, those are the kind of parts of the areas that I that I spend a lot of time. Um, there's really good salamander diversity, especially in the um, the wetter months, um, including dicamptodon, the big um, giant salamanders. Those are really cool to find. And um, you've got a few native frogs, but those are really hard to find nowadays with the introduction of bullfrog and how they've kind of swallowed everybody up but um yeah i think it's a i think it's a pretty good place to grow up in terms of herping opportunities i i feel pretty fortunate to have grown up here and um, there's still a couple species that i still need to check off the, the life list i haven't found zonata yet the the mountain kings um and then i also uh still have to find hypsoglina the the night snakes um both of those are are kind of microhabitat specialists, you know, that are only active in this part of California for like a couple months out of the year, because otherwise it's either too cold or too hot. So we'll see if I can do it this year. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was actually out in California back in mid-January in, in Mendocino of all places. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. You mentioned that. Um, were you out towards the coast? Uh, yeah, like 15 minutes from Mendocino itself. Oh yeah, okay. So yeah, you were right out there. That's a pretty amazing area. Really beautiful out there, nice rugged coastline and some pretty cool herbs too. Where I am, it's more interior. Uh, so actually I lived in Mendocino County up until a couple months ago, um, but on the interior side where it's like 20 degrees hotter sometimes 30 degrees hotter in the summer <laughs> and like it's like it's pretty amazing how much it changes within like you know you drive like an hour inland from the coast and suddenly you're in a total like it's like you may as well be in the desert in the, when, when it's the summertime because it's just where i live it's you know i'm only let's see probably two hours from the coast but it's about 120 degrees in the summer here sometimes so it's it gets gets nasty <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so do you have any like uh planned herping trips or have you gone on any like herping trips they want to talk about um 
you know i mean like i really like would like to do some local trips um this year to try and actually target zonata and hypsoplina those two snakes that i haven't found yet um part of the reason why is because actually i live um much closer now to um where zonata occur in this county there's they're just isolated to a couple different high elevation zones um and i'm only about 30 minutes away from one of those so i'm really gonna give that a shot um if i can find time between all my other responsibilities but um you know there's a lot of herping that i want to do um you know across the united states and honestly across the globe i think that um in the next few years i'd really really like to get down to south america um down to the guy on shield and actually witness some of these habitats firsthand um, of the species that i keep and um i haven't uh you know had a chance to do that yet but i think that in the next couple of years it's going to happen finally so um no active plans at the moment but some strong intentions to make it happen gotcha yeah what about you me uh well i'm poor so no big major trips <laughs> that's kind of my my biggest issue with it too <laughs> yeah. but Not uh cheap. but uh my cousin does have a wedding down in kentucky in uh, july some i know some i fall i know someone on instagram we follow each other uh mm -hmm. down there so i might do like a long weekend down there nice yeah that sounds great but, but you know I do, I do need to do a lot more serious herping around my neck of the woods mm -hmm. but even though it'll only lead to just more northern water snakes so. <laughs> i mean neurodia are pretty cool i think they're i think they're cool snakes but i imagine if you live with them you'd probably get like anything else you know you just get habituated to it it's less fun after a while yeah uh isn't there an erodia species invasive in california yeah i think that there there is um i think there's one species i'm not sure which one it is but um i think they have two two populations um one of which is a few hours from me actually um sacramento california um i've, I've never actually tried to go see them but i've i remember encountering that somewhere online like reading that what Nerodia in California, and sure enough, they're apparently they're established and reproducing in these little pockets. So, just goes to show how resilient those animals are, because it's a long way from home for them. Yeah, yeah. Let's see, there's I'll say three species slash subspecies of Nerodia where I'm uh, in Ohio, but nice. uh, and one of them. Uh, called is the lake erie water snake is only found in a small pocket of ohio so oh, wow, I found cool. a few, it's only found on a few islands off the northwest coast of ohio very cool that's so cool i love i love little endemic things like that you know endemic populations and getting to actually see them and just how they're they can be you know really different even from from mainland population is just a little bit away so cool to see that kind of thing yeah uh, uh is there anything else you want to talk about um i mean i think that's kind of most of what i had in mind to cover 
What about you? Any 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 tags you want to get on before we call it good? Uh, uh before we wrap it up, uh, where can people yeah. find you online? Oh, yeah. So um, where can you find me? Um, I'm on Instagram. I have a couple different accounts. I've got one for Rattlesnake Relations, and then I've got another one um, for my herpetoculture project. That's at Wellspring Herp. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Roy Arthur Blodgett. Um, and I've got, you know, oh, actually, I have, if, if I may, I can plug, I, plug, I have a podcast as well called um, Project Herpetoculture. Um, so you can check us out on there. We're on Instagram, Facebook as well. Um, mostly just talking about nitty gritty of keeping, keeping reptiles. And um, yeah, I welcome any, any sort of feedback from folks, any questions or anything like that you want to talk about. I'm always happy to talk herps. So please feel free to get in touch. All right. Well, with that, uh, call it a wrap for today. Finally, finally awesome. got all the way through. Yeah, we got, we got, we got through it. Thank you so much for your patience. I got to say to all your listeners, yeah. uh, Nate here really, uh, <laughs> he went above and beyond to, to actually make this work. Uh, for some reason, we were having terrible technical difficulties. So I apologize for that. And thank you for your persistence. Thank you again for the opportunity to come on and talk about what I do. I appreciate it. And um, it's always good to talk to good folks in, in the herp world. So thanks for that. It's been my pleasure. All right, man. Take care. Yep.